Hi, folks. Saw jazz hands. That's good. That was not a command. That was not a command, but just an observation. Okay. So, a line from um, the philosopher uh, Wittgenstein, uh, how, how small a thought it takes to fill a life. So, we we don't have the the land we don't have the turkeys the hall we don't have the same breeze there's a lot we don't have but um, of course we do have each other's faces and um, that's a lot and so, so much happens when our, our eyes meet, even digitally mediated meetings like this. So much happens in that uh, encounter that Brian was, was uh, unfolding yesterday. And it, it evokes a lot of important um, Dharma, Dharma themes, what happens in the, that kind of the encounter of, um, of seeing each other, of seeing and being seen. And it, it feels so prominent in, in this format with, uh, with Zoom. And the, the themes of, of self-view, how the self congeals, of intimacy, of dependence, of love, of ethics, of boundaries, of privacy, of solitude, projection. It's like it's all right there in this, the uh, intimacy of the encounter. And in an important sense, the relational world is where the, the, the rubber meets the road in spiritual practice. Because in a way, if, if awakening doesn't have, um, doesn't have social effects, if it doesn't have effects in the relational sphere, exactly how much is it worth? And in this sense, sila is, it's both the starting point, right? The, you know, that um, uh, to practice meditation while doing harm, it, somebody said it's like, um, it was Ajahn Chah, like, uh, like rowing really hard while still being fastened to the dock, right? It's the starting point. 
and it's also the fruition of the path, right? It's like the fruit of all the letting go and the wisdom and the samadhi and the coolness and all of it is a, a relational being that is um, supportive for others. And we, in this realm, this relational realm, in the realm of the of the one's face, of the gaze, the gaze of others. This is, of course, very um, sensitive terrain, and um, and many have experienced um, bias, prejudice, objectification. The gaze is um, intrusive, uh, painful, and so. Um, we, on the one hand, there's like a, a lot of care in opening this theme. And I, as I was putting down notes for the talk today, I remembered a practitioner who said that um, on, on retreat, he, he interpreted the precept around not stealing um, in as having implications around this, around how he would look at other people, how he would look at other bodies, and that he wanted to be very conscious about his gaze so as not to, the way he put it, something like not to steal a visual impression of another in a way that might feel like it was not freely offered, yeah? Some ways it's, it's um, yeah, maybe seems like too much or something, and it's, uh, in other ways, a kind of beautiful to consider, like what, what, what happens in the field uh, between people, what happens with our visual attention. And uh, some, some, traditions use the kind of gaze and the presence of teachers as the engine of transformation. We're actually, as yogis, we're invited to, to rest in the mind of the teacher to sort of fall into the gaze of the teacher, to fall into their presence. And that presence opens a place for us to to grow. And there have been times when, um, when I've sat, you know, sat retreats with teachers that feel um, very, very empty. You know, they're, they're looking at me in the interview, right? And, but they, and they feel maybe like a really potent, big personality, very alive but very empty, like nowhere to, it's just life is just flowing through them in, a, in a, this unobstructed way. And in that emptiness, in that potency, what I, they act as a kind of mirror for me, the practitioner. And 
what mostly what I would see in that mirror, in the mirror of their emptiness was my neurosis. Yeah. Like, like the, um, yeah, I'm having this image of like, you know, sock puppets with lights and all that projected on the wall and sort of like, and it was like me kind of like little monkey Matthew, you know, like just projected on the wall, right? That's like what I would see, right? And even sometimes everything I might say feels false, everything you know, it just like acting out some mode of self dismissal or self aggrandizement or something. And it's just like, oh, you get to actually see that. It's been some years since I've talked about this, but uh, that famous exhibit from uh, from Marina Abramovich, right? The artist is present, yeah? We have some, some New Yorkers in the house here. And um, I wasn't there for, for the exhibit, um, but I've read about it and seen the film around it. And, um, and she, she, the performance artist, you know, sat in this, in this hall and, for, uh, you know, I think it was many hundreds of hours of sitting and 1500 people and the whole exhibit kind of um, put you into a presence basically. And there's just two chairs, I'll show you a picture in a moment, two chairs in the middle of this grand hall at the Museum of Modern Art. And, um, and, and then, and people would just be invited to look, to look, yeah? And what happens when we look in that way? What happens when we are seen in that way? So here's the hall. Marina and people who could sit as long as they they wished, yeah? And some people would sit for a minute and some people, somebody sat for six hours, yeah? While the line is all through the museum, yeah? And uh, there was a series of photographs that were taken where, um, all of the people in the series are crying. And there are a few.
So what happens when we receive the gaze, when we gaze in a way it's uh, important parallels in how we actually attune to ourselves and what actually comes up. The, the encounter that we have with ourselves in meditation can have that same poignancy. And eye contact, uh, you know, for mammals to look at each other, it's a big deal, right? It means a lot. And in general, there, there are only really two, two pairings that gaze comfortably into each other's eyes for more than a few seconds, right? It's, it's like lovers and parent-child dyads, generally. Yeah, there are exceptions, but in general, those are the, those are the, the dyads that sustain eye contact for maybe more than three seconds. And what this means is we're only ever four seconds from a super intense moment with each other, yeah? Right? When uh, at one point in a training retreat, I got paired up with a, a teaching colleague for 15 minutes of silent gazing into each other's eyes. And this was a friend and a you know, teaching colleague, somebody I had a warm you know, relationship with. Um, um, but okay, 15 minutes, yeah. And so are you aware as you gaze, you know, are you aware of seeing or primarily of being seen? Are you an object in the mind of the other? Yeah, like in what ways are you envisioning the other, imagining you? When, when children start to develop like a more nuanced uh, called like theory of mind, when they can have a kind of more, uh, uh, more detailed sense of what might, the way they appear in the mind of others, yeah, four or five, something like that. Um, at that age, they start to become less willing to do things like perform, yeah, sing, dance, do things, yeah, uh, because all of a sudden the threat of judgment becomes more real, yeah, and we have elaborate theory of mind. We can envision the inner states of others in in real deep ways, and there may be a lot of projection in that. It may be a kind of projection of our own sense of self and we're, we're projecting it into them. But, um, but this gives us a chance to see like, okay, what, what is concealed? What do I, what must not be seen? What must not be seen? In the gaze of the other, what must not be seen? 
and so with this friend, uh, this colleague, um, you know, some of the time it was, um, you know, just super intimate. You 15 minutes is a long time. Yeah. Silence too. Silent, a silent room. Yeah. 15 minutes. And, and it got very intimate, you know, to the point where it was like, I, I think I literally remember like, is this legal? Is this, is this adultery? What is happening here? You know? And, um, and then maybe there'd be a flash of self-consciousness, you know, like, like, and, and the, all of a sudden the coagulation of self. Yeah. So we would move from like some field um, of, of some presence into a coagulation of the self. And it's literally like the attention just moves back into the corner of the mind, the, into one's head, literally spatially. It's like a moving back and it's painful. It interrupts the connection, right? It becomes a, a little static in the field of connection. And so we can see how, how the, the gaze of the other evokes our sense of self. It shines a light on the architecture of self view. Yeah, this is important to actually be able to see the outlines of self view of how, what, how, who we take ourselves to be. We start to see that in the, you know, in the intimacy of that encounter. And the comparing, the, the kind of coagulation of self happens in all these ways of what do I want to, to show, you know, like show and tell, like see this, see this, or don't see that, or the comparison that like exquisite pain of measuring ourselves against others of, um, yeah, of defining them and defining us and doing some kind of comparison. It's like the whole field of connection collapses under the weight of that clinging. And this happens so much between us, right? It happens so much between us so quickly in our lives and in ordinary social scenes at a party or something like that, or in a meeting or, you know, just, just even, even with a loved one, it's like, oh, and ego to ego connection is, is not satisfying, you know, or it's not really, it's not deeply satisfying. It's like eating a lot of cotton candy. Yeah. Like sweet, but nothing there. And then the stomach ache, right? Ajahn Sajito, um, he uh, was abbot of a monastery for many years. Uh, and uh, during that time, you know, in the Thai forest tradition, but in that time, he started to see um, 
that his monastic community like needed some supplementation of like different skills. It's a very traditional meditative community, but um, but he found that the practices, all the practices with which you're familiar, were somehow leaving certain relational patterns in place, certain relational neurosis in place. And he started doing all these interesting, innovative, relational mindfulness practices. And when, when he teaches retreat now, he often offers some of that. And um, he described the way we ordinarily relate the uh, the um, yeah the kind of like personality based you know meeting as um, he described it as as eerie and that word really struck me that description of there's something a little eerie as we have these like beating tender hearts with this longing to connect, this longing to be safe with each other, this longing for, uh, yeah, to, 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 to um, relax into a kind of field of presence. And yet, even with all of that longing to connect in that way, it's often so just tight and yeah, egoically driven. Now, of course, we can't trust everyone with our heart, right? That kind of porousness and vulnerability does not make sense with some people. I, I am, for all my tough talk about this, I am very careful who I entrust my heart to. Like a lot of people don't know, you know, not, not the closest people, but a lot of people who are not in the Dharma realm, who maybe know me in some ways well, they don't have any idea about what I really care about. Because um, if I tried to express it to them, they wouldn't understand. And that would be very painful. What comes over me in that relation is something like shame, like I'm embarrassed to care about what I care about. I'm embarrassed to love the Dharma in this way. And so it's not shared. It's okay, it's okay. It makes sense sometimes to engage in one's, um, uh, yeah, so like uh, a kind of shtick. You know, we try not to be too alienated from our, our shtick, yeah? We try to find some ways of investing our heart into it, but we have to modulate how close, how much we're willing to actually surrender to the gaze of the other, right? And with this friend, as we gazed and gazed longer and, um, and I could feel her practice, you know, in all the years, decades of her practice. And we settled in, it felt more and more natural to settle in, to be, um, 
yeah, to settle in deeply and, and moments it, it became, it moved from becoming like very intimate, very personal to a sense of, of, um, I don't transpersonal or something where, where I, I no longer seemed human and she no longer seemed, looked human. It was just um, space and light and silence. And then it even deepened further into the kind of, um, it's an unusual realm for this, but it's like in, in the intensity, the kind of cauldron of that attentional field, it deepened into um, the sense of, of experience ceasing, the cessation of experience, yeah? It's like the, the, the attentional field was like so, uh, so rich and full. Um, that, um, that everything got lighter and lighter and thinner and thinner and less and less dense until nothing there. The face has an ethical dimension. Like uh, I see so much in your uh, in your faces, and um, as we get quieter, more sensitive, we start to see more and more. It's like the face starts to. I don't know in the in the tears of those the the photos that I shared like um, it's like the face is the autobiography somehow. Yeah. Brian yesterday um, spoke yeah beautifully around this and and alluded to uh, to Levinas and. Um, this philosopher that uh, I don't understand, but um, little pockets I can get, yeah. And this is a, a commentary. My my first encounter with uh, with the philosopher was through commentary from Stephen Batchelor in the book uh, Living with the Devil. So Batchelor says. Um, even when no words are spoken, your face calls out to me. The first word of the face, says the Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, is the thou shalt not kill. It is an order. There is a commandment in the appearance of the face as if a master spoke to me. At the same time, the face of the other is destitute. It is the poor for whom I can do all and to whom I owe all. Bachelor continues, we recognize this call 
because we hear it in the echo of our own deepest fears and longings, another's face shocks us into a helpless silence in which we are called to respond from the same depth within ourselves that we witness in their plea. The roots of empathy, compassion, and love lie in that intimate encounter where we hear the other wordlessly say, do not kill me, do not rob me, do not abuse or deceive me, do not betray me, do not insult me, do not waste my time, do not try to possess me, do not bear me ill will, do not misconstrue me. A person is like a path, a space whose trajectory we may or may not be invited to share. As we embark on the seemingly endless quest of mutual understanding, we become a chapter in each other's story, figures in each other's dreams, creators of each other's self. Letting go um, of the congealed, coagulated self uh, opens new possibilities for intimacy. The, the hallmark of the ego, as I said, is defensiveness. That's one way we can understand it. The hallmark of the ego is defensiveness because it, with every self there are, we, we, we stand guard at the gates of that self. And at that gate, there are only VIPs and intruders, yeah? Some honored, yeah? Honored guests and others that we refuse entry, right? The compliments and the insults that which affirms my sense of self and that which destabilizes it, yeah. And so we, we begin with self-love, right? And the opposite of anatta is self-hatred, not self-love, yeah. There's a kind of spectrum of letting go. Their self-hatred is the deepest preoccupation with the self. And then there's some acceptance and then maybe a deeper acceptance and then a deeply loving acceptance of me, my personality, my habits, my past, all of it, yeah? And then that deepening loving acceptance continues and there's a, this more radical non-interference with the, with the sensory components of myself, with the center of narrative gravity that we spoke about. So we begin to, to love ourselves, which really is, means more like acceptance, you know? It's more like acceptance rather than, it's not like, I, I, am, I, am, I am the Reverend Dr. Brent Silver, and I 
love myself. No, it's like, it's like, no, it's just like, uh, I'm whatever. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm not good. It's like, I'm, it's whatever. It's not the point. Yeah. We like, don't fixate in the same way. Yeah. That's closer to self-love than like, oh, I'm great. Yeah. It's like, there's a brittleness in that. The self-love is a facet of acceptance, of flexibility, of fluidity, of tolerating ambivalence and ambiguity, of not needing to fixate a good self. Yeah. And so that as, as we get more fluid in that realm, you know, it's like, um, as we become less of a preoccupation for ourselves, there's less and less static in the field of connection. And the ego is not, it's not merely a cause of pain for ourself, but it exerts effects on others, right? The egoic, our own egoic pressure leaks out and requires adaptation from the other, yeah? Right. If I am insisting on a certain view of my self, um, you have to like find a way of accommodating what is essentially a demand I am placing on you. Yeah, to collude in my clinging. Yeah. And so much of our social life and the way we navigate each other is like, um, like social habits and mores and manners and all of that in a certain way is oriented around the clinging of the other. It's like tiptoeing around the egoic sensitivities of the other, right? We all know that experience where we're having to dodge and weave and find our way so as not to press on the pressure point, the wounded spot. And the ego is always wounded. Yeah. And, and so to begin to be more flexible in ourself starts to free others up to... Um, settle into their experience in a deeper way. Yeah, they're no longer navigating those pressures and they can just relax. Yeah. It's like, um, yeah, the Buddha said, make of yourself a refuge for all beings. That entails um, a measure of anatta, yeah? Anatta is part of what makes us safe for others. And so we, we talk about not self, these teachings on not self, but uh, could also it's, it's, it's not other too. It's not, not self of the other meaning, and Brian was talking about this the way 
that, that famous line from Ajahn Sumedho, don't create them, don't create your family, don't conjure them into a fixed entity. And this happens, we know this experience, it happens a lot with the people we have the longest history with, the people we love most, the people we're closest to, the people we depend most on, the people who depend on us. And over the years, we get so familiar with them. We know so much about their, their face. We know so much about their inner life that we begin to, uh, we stop looking at them. We stop actually seeing them. And instead, what we see is the shorthand of our multi-layered concept of them. And sometimes those concepts feel so thick. It's like, I can't even penetrate through, yeah. One of our uh, colleagues, uh, Eugene Cash, I heard him say once that uh, I think I think on like on Father's Day, he sits down with his daughter and says, uh, says to her, I am not your father. And not not in the uh, Jerry Springer way, like like but like I'm not your father. Yeah. And she says, I'm not your daughter. Yeah. And something very powerful in just um, refusing to get um, kind of lost in identified with these roles, with these particular arrangements of connection. When we relate to another in this kind of fixed way, when we, when the, the, the anatta quality in the other is not appreciated, the intimacy and spontaneity is um, is is um, short-circuited somehow, and so after years, decades, we might look at them and just like, "Who are you? Like, who are you?" Yeah. Psychiatrist Kernberg said, um, "There's a line I appreciate: love is." The love is the realization of the other person's freedom. Yeah, love's the, the no, the love is the revelation of the other person's freedom. And that does not mean a, an uncommitted life or to refuse dependency or refuse the possibility of loss or refuse commitment in any way. But there's something for me that feels important about the un, the unpossessability of others. The unpossessability of others, even those we, we have the deep contract with, yeah. And um, what, what um, comes to mind is the film Her, Spike Jones, um, 
and um, where Joaquin Phoenix is, uh, it's set in the kind of near future and Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with a, a artificially intelligent operating system that is voiced by um, Scarlett Johansson, yeah? And um, it's, a, it's a wild movie that definitely splits people in terms of their views of appreciation for it. And it seems like it's about tech or something like that, but I, I really received it much more about love and self and body and, you know, all these like interesting, very rich things. So, okay, so Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with, with Samantha, her name. So Theodore is, is the character of Phoenix. And then Samantha is the operating system that it just connects with through his phone, right? And it's a love story. It's a real love story and you can feel it. And it's like um, kind of amazing and, and complicated and unsatisfying in all these different ways. And, um, and at, towards the end of the film, um, Theodore learns that Samantha is actually in love with 641 other users, yeah? <laughs> it's like not monogamous at all, right? And um, so they're having a difficult conversation, yeah? And it sounds like it's like just, you know, science fiction, but it's really, it's a love story, yeah? Theodore says, how does that not change how you feel about me? Samantha, I'm sorry I didn't tell you. I didn't know how to. It just started happening. When? Over the past few weeks. But you're mine. I still am yours. But along the way, I became many other things too. And I can't stop it. What do you mean you can't stop it? It's been making me anxious too. I don't know what to say. Theodore says, just stop it. You know, you don't have to see it that way. You could just as easily, no, no, don't do this to me. You Don't turn this around on me. You're the one that's being selfish. We're in a relationship. Samantha responds, but the heart is not like a box that gets filled up. It expands in size the more you love. I'm different from you. That doesn't make me love you any less. It actually makes me love you more. No, that doesn't make any sense. You're mine or you're not mine. No, Theodore, I'm yours and I'm not yours. And then when they're, they're breaking up, Samantha says, um, she says, it's like I'm reading a book and it's a book I deeply love, but I'm reading it slowly now. So the words are really far apart and the spaces between the words are almost infinite. 
I can still feel you and the words of our story, but it's in this endless space between the words that I am finding myself now. It's a place that's not of the physical world. It's where everything else is that I didn't even know existed. I love you so much, but this is where I am now. This is who I am now. And I need you to let me go. As much as I want to, I can't live in your book anymore. What a absolute gift and mystery it is to be in each other's lives, to look into each other's eyes with, uh, with wonder and awe and not knowing and love and tenderness and shame and the poignancy of it all. And this sense, this sense of unpossessability, it, um, it totally permits love, deep love, radical love to be there, but it makes hatred less and less tenable. Yeah, we can uh, we can love each other as we love the the ocean waves rolling up on the sand, uh, but no one no one owns the ocean. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.